Whether most people realize it, poor mental health can lead to poor physical health and vice versa. Research has linked depression to many chronic health conditions. Mental health conditions can also lead to sleeping problems or other physical ailments. Around 50 to 80% of people with mental health conditions experience sleeping problems compared to 10 to 18% of the general population. Welcome to Kids Can, Healthy Kids, Better World, a podcast from Action for Healthy Kids. Welcome back to Kids Can, presented by Action for Healthy Kids, a show highlighting everyday issues children face today and featuring conversations on how you can help the kids in your life. I'm your host, Rob Bisegli. Joining me on the show today, Chief Executive for Wellbeing Trust, social entrepreneur, and master of divinity, Tyler Norris. For three decades, Tyler has been affecting change in communities around the world. He's helped government agencies build infrastructure, shape health initiatives, and now is leading one of the most important health foundations in the country, the Wellbeing Trust. Today, he's here to talk to us about the connections between physical, mental, and social health, how he's working to address these issues around the globe, and how we can better identify and address these needs for kids. Hi, Tyler. It's uh, great to see you today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Rob. Really a delight to be here with you. Yeah, I, I can't tell you how excited I am and how thrilled I am. And we've known each other for some years, and I'm just so grateful that you're uh, willing to join us this morning on the podcast. Well, it's really a delight, and it's been such a an honor for me to get to know the work of Action for Healthy Kids over the years and what fifty five thousand some schools, and it's an extraordinary movement you've helped build. And yeah, thanks for bringing me in. Thanks, Tyler. So as I think you know, the premise of this podcast and all the work at Action for Healthy Kids, everything we do day in and day out for that matter, is that our early life experiences and the adults who care for us in our early lives, they have a transformative impact on our lives. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about a story from your early life, your experience, you know, a transformative experience in your life from your childhood. Sure, I'd be happy to. And all of this is so relevant as I'm thinking about earlier this week when there was a declaration from the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and Children's Hospital declaring a national emergency in child and adolescent mental health. And that's just all too real for me uh, in my life. And, you know, uh, at age 62, it's a lot easier to see what I couldn't earlier in my life, which is that my wounds became my way, my early life challenges, and frankly, how they were met in my community directly shaped my path. And I'll just say, Rob, if there's any doubt about the power of shame, even though I'm about to freely tell you a story, just as I did at, as a commencement speaker in June, 43 years later from my graduation from high school, it was only until a couple of years ago in my mid-50s as the leader of a mental health foundation, a trained chaplain, you know, the chair of a university board, that I could get past the shame to tell the story of what I experienced at 14. Well, fueled by stolen alcohol, a couple of buddies and I engaged in a daytime spree of breaking and entering and vandalism. Of course, it only took a couple of days to get caught. 
And a few weeks later, one of the worst days of my life, there was a big community meeting. Now, Rob, I grew up in a small rural community where I'm living now, only a couple thousand people. And there we were in the auditorium, my buddy, their parents, my parents, which just I thought I was going to die right there on the spot. And the judge and the police chief and the school principal were all up front and kind of a community meeting and just just thought I was going to die. And I remember the booming voice of the school principal saying, any kids that would do this to this school and this community need this community. And it changed my life. They wrapped around me. I experienced diversion and what we would call restorative justice. My buddy and I had a couple of years to pay off the damages we've done. By the time I was 18, my record was expunged and I went off to college later to work for a senator and on into my career. I experienced as a rural white kid in a rural community, a level of privilege that I know is not true in my adopted community of Oakland. For a lot of the black and brown kids in that community would never get that same kind of treatment rooted in dignity and respect and rather would have been judged for their behavior. So I'll just say that, you know, with community saving my life, it deepened my sense of calling to later work uh, with homeless uh, folks that were street addicted in Denver, uh, helping start a program that lives to this day, that's helped tens of thousands of people struggling with alcohol and other addictions on the streets. Community saved my life. I've dedicated my life to healthier places and healthier people and healthier places. And I've placed a focus on young people whose privilege may have been different than mine but whose struggles were very much the same or, or even worse. First, Tyler, I want to say thank you for sharing uh, with us. Uh, we're honored to have this conversation with you. As a father of a 14-year-old son, oh my God. I, I can just imagine what that was like for the loved ones, you know, for your loved ones, uh, those folks in your life. Was there someone in particular, you called out a couple of community members. So this is someone who really played a key role in that experience for you. <laughs> yeah, I'm already going to start weeping here. You know, I just want to evoke the name of the principal, Sam Hazard and his wife, Julie Hazard, and my uncle, Bill McMahon, who God knows whose ranch I worked at with his wife, Lynn. Had they not embraced me and brought me in, not to mention the judge, that record expunging doesn't even happen anymore. Judge Daniel Alvin has since passed. The police chief later completed suicide, just to name the pain that goes on in our communities. But those individuals reminded me that my behavior was not a moral failing or a character flaw, that I was struggling, that I was loved, and that there was a way forward. And they reminded me that I had value and worth and was wanted and that I could work through it. And um, just like you and I have talked in the past about the work of Peter Benson and the Search Institute and this extraordinary data around young people having adults in their lives, probably the most powerful preventive measure or recovery measure for kids to have caring adults wrapped around young people, which couldn't be more the premise of your mission, Rob. Yeah. The research couldn't be more clear. As a matter yes. of fact, a nurturing relationship with at least one adult, at least one. In your case, you had a number of folks who, as you mentioned, wrapped around you, but that one adult- God knows I needed them, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> could not be more important. And in lots of cases, life-saving for kids. So, so important. How did that experience, Tyler, impact your life and who you are and what you believe today? 
I think first of all, and this may be as much of a spiritual statement as anything else, but that none of us are beyond redemption. And that if we're given a safe space to be heard and kind of discover ourselves and begin to come to terms with ourselves, that in that is a seed, in that wound, in that brokenness is the seed of promise. And, you know, even though, as I told you, I had difficulty telling my story, it was very much alive in shaping what I did later in life and very much my trajectory of finding myself the CEO of a mental health foundation and chairing the board of a university right now. It's very much struggling with the mental health and resilience issues of our students on campus. I couldn't feel more connected to who I really am. We talk a lot about uh, calling. Vocation is sometimes shifted to talk about trade skills and that. And that's a really, you know, those are high dignity jobs. But really, it helped me understand my vocare, my calling. And with the support around me, I was able to live that out. And here I am by the grace of God. Yeah. Based on what you do now, today, was there a moment that you remember where you kind of, that inspired you right. to pursue yeah. the work that you do today, both here in the United States and internationally? I hope we can touch on both. Was there a moment for you? Mm. I appreciate that question. And I, I guess I'm drawn to, you know, when I was 23, a couple of years after graduation, I'd worked for a senator for a while. I was a flight instructor and I had a great job in the aviation field in Denver. And um, I, one uh, Thanksgiving, I was drawn to the streets and basically wanted to understand what was going on in lower downtown Denver. Now, many of people who go visit Denver today, know Coors Field and fancy Lodo, man, it was skid row and rough, rough, rough back in that chapter in the early 80s. And I found a, a man named Ray Hayworth, who was since deceased, who had a, about five guys trying to stay sober in a storefront right down at 21st and Larimer, going to work every day. You know, they had day labor jobs, could guarantee sobriety because they were helping each other stay sober and Ray wanted to grow it. And so we helped him grow it. And before you knew it, we had 30 people inside. We were bursting at the seams and we'd been eyeing an old A&P supermarket across the street, 30,000 square feet, three stories, been sitting there for years. We finally figured out it was owned by the disabled American veterans. And a woman named Kathy Ellis, whose mother had been on the street for schizophrenia, and I went down to the DAV, and there we sat across these dignified officers with all their medals from Korea and Vietnam. And we're like, oh my God, Kathy, we have no business. I was 23, not in the military. What, what were you doing with these folks? And we said, we need that building. A quarter of our members are, are veterans. And um, here's was our plan. And gosh, we walked out of there later that day with a 10-year, $1 a year lease to renovate that building. And we went back and we're talking to the guys that managed the front door and they were just wrapping up an AA meeting. And Kathy and I were sort of saying, we just got a lease to a building and we have no money to renovate it. It's gutted. And one of the guys stood up and said, and we don't even have a bleep blinking plumber. <laughs> and the next guy said, well, I'm a master plumber. And until I was drinking and, uh, drinking and lost my business and my family, I was one of the best in the state. And the guy next to him said, and I'm a master electrician and lost my business the same way. And we found out that we had every single skill set that we needed to renovate that building in the building. And nine months later, and still standing to this day is that building 
that demonstrated that those people who everyone had given up on were actually capable of being the source of their issue. And I have practiced asset-based community development, recognizing the dignity and skills and capability of human beings and their redemptive ability ever since, because I know that wherever there is light and life, there is hope. And um, I've never looked back from that sense of the potential in every single human being. And God only knows if we could just help reach people before they end up so many rungs down the ladder that they had to discover it on the street. Yeah, that story is the perfect story for the Tyler that I have come to know and mm -hmm. really look up to. So I really appreciate that. Through the work of your foundation, the Wellbeing Trust, you collaborate with a large group of partners to pursue improvements around mental health and substance mm -hmm. misuse issues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've participated in some of your convenings, so I know uh, that you're taking what I'll call an upstream, what we'll call an upstream approach, right. uh, which is informed, of course, by those downstream efforts that are so important, some of which you were just talking about. Yeah. The research around these two societal challenges is convincing mm. and demonstrates the interrelationship mm. between the issues. Mm. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about your approach around these two really important lines of work? Sure. Uh, I'd be happy to, because frankly, I think there's uh, no more important issue facing our country. So uh, a few years ago, the Sisters of Providence and St. Joseph that are now the Providence Health System, uh, when they came together, said they wanted to do something to face one of the greatest challenges facing our country, just as you're saying, the mental health and addiction and suicide challenge facing the country. And they funded what is now Wellbeing Trust. And I asked, well, why didn't you hire a top psychiatrist or something? deep professional in the mental health field that said, you're, you're hiring a, a community organizer, a community builder to help lead this foundation. Why? And they said, Tyler, because your approach is to build local social movements, not campaigns where people do things for a few years, but where you launch and, and unleash the discretionary energy, the discretionary leadership, the distributed leadership of business, government, nonprofit, the faith community the power of our local democracy to solve problems, not just more expertise, get those people on your team, but build a movement. So we said, build a social movement. So we reverse engineered the suffrage movement, civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the environment movement, even the marriage equality movement. They say, what do great and powerful social movements have? And we identified seven themes that I'll come back to. But first, we built a framework for excellence in mental health and well-being that matched what the evidence base said is capable of saving lives and creating equitable well-being for everyone in this country. That framework roots in three elements, care, coverage, and community. And on the care front, integrated whole person care with no wrong door including addressing social needs like housing insecurity, food insecurity, as part of clinical quality. And that if you got it, you got to get the care right so that wherever you meet, you get into integrated physical, mental, behavioral health in the same place. Get the care right. Secondly, coverage. We got to make sure there's affordable access to that high quality care. So everything we're doing to enforce mental health parity, help create gold standard mental health laws like Illinois passed just a few months ago, 
California late in the year with California SB 855 to enforce mental health parity laws as the law of the land, ensure coverage. Third, to create healthy communities in the first place. Even if you get the care right and get it paid for, our society is producing a great part of the anxiety, the depression, the suicidal ideation, et cetera, because of the lack of the vital conditions for human flourishing in the first place combined with racial and ethnic disparities driven very much by what I described describing the minute ago, the American uh, Academy of Psychiatry editors saying the inequities that result from structural racism are directly contributed to these disproportionate impacts. So care, coverage, and community is what our framework is about. So we looked at these seven elements of what makes a social movement, policy, communications, and we mapped what is in place and what is missing. We found there was no 501c4 to take the gloves off and advocate for great mental health policy. So we helped start Inseparable. You can find it at inseparable.us. We discovered that there was no kind of major organizing group that could help philanthropies find the best evidence and deploy that to de-risk solutions on the ground. So we created mindfulphilanthropy.org with a series of other fund foundations to help the philanthropic community get past the stigma and invest in what works on the ground. We needed a network of communities that were doing good work. So we partnered in what is now the WIN network or the Wellbeing in the Nation network and partnered with the National League of Cities and others to help create place-based strategies. Later on, Dan Gillison, the CEO of NAMI and I discovered that the mental health leadership community isn't really organized. So we organized the CEO huddle that published the unified vision, which is a seven pillar strategy that now there's deep alignment around the guilds, American Psychiatric Association, Psychological Association, NAMI, Mental Health America, Human Advocacy Center, and others, Kennedy Forum, that are so important. Now we're all on the same page. In other words, we built movement infrastructure. We partnered with the Kaiser Family Foundation to get the data right with Kenneth Cole and others around the Mental Health Foundation to make sure that communications were reaching people. And now we're focusing on 988 because we believe that that new system is going to be, frankly, a Trojan horse to be able to transform not only emergency response, but to build out ecosystems of care in communities that can deliver outcomes. So as a small philanthropy, you know, we have a framework that's rooted in the evidence base. We're working on building a social movement. And for people who are listening, going, I'm not a national person. What can I do? That same premise is like a fractal. You can apply it at the state level. You can apply it at the local level. You need those policy levers, communication levers, engagement, data, methods of inclusion. That's our impact strategy, Rob. Thank you. Yeah. You need infrastructure. I mean, that's what you, you used that word a moment ago. Amen. It's the infrastructure of a movement. Yes. So how, you know, this particular podcast, our podcast, Kids Can, is yep. about kids, of course. Yes. Right? Yes. So yes. how can you tell us a little bit about that infrastructure and the work that you do and that's how it relates to kids issues for parents and school stakeholders who are the audiences that we serve at Action for Healthy Kids? Thank you. That's such a, such a beautiful question. And I want to just start with where you started was infrastructure. You know, in our communities, when we talk about built infrastructure, roads, bridges, power lines, we all understand they need to be built and maintained. Rob, you and I are talking about civic infrastructure, skills, processes, relationships, ways of getting work done also have to be built, also have to be maintained. 
Those are the enabling factors of social capital. Human capital is what people can do. Social capital impacts what people will do to unleash that discretionary energy I was talking about, that distributed action in communities, that power of our local democracy, that despite our political fray right now, we all understand that the ground needs to happen. So in that context of infrastructure, kind of focused on two elements. One is skills and the other is sort of policy strategies kind of around that. I'm a member of the National Academy of Sciences, Education and Medicine's Child Wellbeing Forum. One of the things that we focused on a re recent release of a tool, and we can make sure that's available to you, is a tool that focuses on the skills and capacities of young people to practice emotional self-regulation and to sort of help themselves be okay, to help their friends be okay, to help children realize and youth realize their feelings uh, in the first place and what they can do when they find them. Not only tied to kind of the extra layer of challenge around COVID, but what does a young person do when they're feeling rising anxiety and depression or notice a friend doing that, or they, they find themselves wanting to do self-harm or have a friend that does. And so this board on children, youth and families uh, partnering with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Jacob Foundation, and others have helped build the toolkit. That's important. So we could talk a lot about social emotional learning, the work of Castle and others. It's so important. But I think one of the things that's key at age appropriate levels is that young people who are naturally empathic, human beings are naturally empathic, are supported in developing those social emotional skills. I mean, forgive me, but I'm all for STEM. I'm all for STEAM, including the arts. But if you don't get social emotional learning right, you can't have all these competencies, but they're not going to create a well-rounded adult, parent, community leader, et cetera. Yeah. The other thing we're working on so hard right now is policy. Much of our work lately that I'd like to first start lift up is with Active Minds, which is in chapters uh, in hundreds of schools uh, around the country, mostly in colleges, but some earlier chapters, and Young Invincibles which we find to be a really powerful group of youth driving policy change. We've partnered with Inseparable that I mentioned earlier in their Hopeful Futures campaign because it's rooted in what are the keys to a comprehensive school mental health system? The first being early identification, right? Got to get that right. You know, given the high prevalence and recurrence of mental health disorders, we need to be able to identify problems early and connect students to needed services and supports through regular screening and referral to accessible care. Number one, early identification. Number two, school-based mental health services. Schools need to be able to offer accessible, multi-tiered mental health services and supports to support their academic, social, and psychological development. Third, trained educators, staff, and mental health professionals, specialized support teams, team of mental health professionals that can back up teachers. Teachers can't do this by themselves. You need partnership and equip educators with those skills and the resources they need to support their classrooms. And fourth, school community partnerships and developing the working relationships between schools and the larger community that create pathways to ensure not only the delivery of, of great care, but the preventive systems that are so needed up front. And so, Rob, that's what we're committed to and everything we're doing around policy. And just to name, you know, policy right now, like HR 721, the Mental Health Services for Students Act, or HR 1475, Pursuing Equity and Mental Health Act, or the Stand Up Act, HR 
586. Those are all pieces of legislation that match the kind of learning we have from so many reports like the Nemours, recent Nemours Pediatric Mental Health and Behavioral Health Report, what we're seeing coming out of the White House right now about how we improve access and care for youth mental health and substance use conditions. Yeah, there's so much. There's just so much. And it's all saying the same thing. There's so much out there all saying the same thing. And this was what it comes back to the infrastructure, Rob, and I'll, I'll pause with this, that we know what we need to do. The question is, how can we get past our wrangling to build the committee and political will to do what we need to do? And that's the social capital question, because it's, it's about building the political will to do what we know we need to do. Yeah. It's not a lack of evidence base or an understanding about what works because we see bright spots everywhere. Yeah. So the work we do at Action for Healthy Kids is, I think, as I believe you know, is around what we call family school partnerships. Exactly. Which we think are critical to a real progress at the school community level. We've been working on it for years. So I'd like to take the conversation down another level. Yes. A little bit more granular. Especially yeah, for some of the parents and caregivers yes. who are listening. Can you talk a little bit about some of the successful strategies or tactics, for that matter, that parents and caregivers should be thinking about when it comes to, especially let's talk about social emotional health for kids. Right. Uh, right. Is there anything you would point to in your work that is coming out that parents and caregivers should know about and have their eye on, whether it be for something they advocate for in their local school building or something that they volunteer for or something that they talk to their kids about? What jumps out at you? Yeah, it's a great question. And let's address it at a few levels. Maybe we start a little bit in a socio-ecological way by just starting about the tenderness of a young person, right? You know, our, our most precious sensitive human beings. And, you know, we have to ask ourselves first, why are some of these most sensitive human beings in our society not faring so well? And what does it first say about us and our society, not about kids? So that the first response we have when we start to see something rising in a young person that just doesn't feels off or it doesn't make sense, or we're seeing some kind of signs that, that, that we just get past what our judgment might be or what our, you know, jumping too fast to what our fears are and listen, 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 and create a safe space so that that young person feels like it's okay to say the thing. In fact, how about adults saying the thing, talking about their anxiety or addictive patterns or depression? That gives permission to young people to say the thing. So we got to break the silence first and foremost. And that means teacher, not just the students, but teachers and principals and coaches and parents and family members and faith leaders to talk about these issues, to ask the hard questions. And that's going to give youth permission. So I think that's my first piece. Create the safe space for people to talk. The most important human need is to be heard. And if we are violating that by not creating safe space for young people to start to express when those early signs are rising, that's our first opportunity. Let me put it this way. Yeah, Tyler, before you even move on, I think this is a perfect opportunity for us to talk about something that as both a, a father of three yes. kids in the K through 12 yep. space and in my work at Action for Healthy Kids, 
I believe it's the most alarming of the most alarming, which is around suicidism for youth in this country. As you know, we've seen a dramatic increase over the last decade or so. For young teens, the rates of teen suicides have nearly tripled Mm -hmm. over a 10-year period. Mm -hmm. And I I can think of no trend that is more alarming than that, You know, like I said, as both a father Mm -hmm. and in my professional life. And I, I know that you know, based on what you were just saying, you know, about listening, can you tell us a little bit about what you've learned about this issue and what everyone, all adults, all caregivers should know about, you know, what's critical for parents and caregivers and school stakeholders to know? First of all, I'm so glad you brought this up. And as you know, I'm a father of two and my kids are in their late 20s now, but it was only at 18 when my son shared with me that Around that same ripe age, when I got in so much trouble, he had experienced suicidal ideation. And as much as our mother and I tried, his mother and I tried to create a safe space, boy, we didn't hear it then. Fortunately, a lot of support around him and good household. He found his way, but it's so real. And it's in our family. My uncle completed suicide in front of his family. And so we, we, we know how deep that is. You know, there's no more alone place than being, than being in suicidal ideation. It's extraordinary to be in a place of no hope. And, you know, what brings that on? A little shaming, a little bullying, being told you're not worth it or not up to it or experiencing racism or not included or being dissed or separated because you're a boy who might like a boy or a girl who might like girls, or you're experiencing gender identity, fluidity, you know, we'll start to talk about that, but the shame comes on so quickly and are not heard. And so we stuff it and we're not sure we can feel it or say it. We heal what we feel. We've got to create space for young people to say the thing and feel their feelings. When we hide suicide, like we do, through so much stigma that we don't talk about it, we should not be surprised that rates are increasing. Now, we could talk about everything from racism to the existential nature of our climate crisis that's showing very young people to very understandably worry about the future of civilization, even though so many people our age write all this stuff off of, well, we'll see. That's not possible for young people anymore. We don't have to look very far to see the impact of, of what's going on around that would drive suicidal ideation. So I guess I would say the first thing is to create a language for young people to be able to talk about this, model the kind of safety by talking about these issues ourselves, creating safe space at home, in the community, in school environments, and back our kids up. And when school of leaders or members of the community try and shut that down because of their own shame or frankly, their own unhealed trauma that hasn't been addressed. And they don't want to talk about it because they don't want to deal with it themselves. We got to help those adults deal with their trauma, right? When you find adults who don't want to talk about anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation and don't want that happening in the school, That's not a place for progressives or someone to deride someone. It's a recognition that that's a response to those individuals' own trauma. So we need to do the work in a non-judgmental, loving kindness way to respect that some of those school and community leaders that are trying to shut down conversations. You know, I live in a state 
we got a lot of guns. We don't want to talk about guns. And one of the reasons we don't want to is there's a lot of unhealed trauma because in this state, the way we complete suicide is guns. But everybody then feels like it's an attack on rights. It's not an attack on rights. It's a conversation. And so I'm just going to say that I'm not talking about the people that are afraid of talking about suicide. I'm talking about the people that are angry at people who won't talk about suicide. Bring your own loving kindness and recognize that those folks who are trying to shut down conversations around mental health are experiencing their own trauma and need the same loving kindness. That is a guidance to people with whom I mostly agree who are trying to create conversations. So make it safe, including for people who are, frankly, may not be aligned with more mental health and addressing trauma and other issues in schools is, uh, is to be able to heal our community more broadly as a prerequisite to being able to create safe environments in our schools and communities. Yeah, I think you're already touching on this, Tyler. And I, I wish we had a lot more time to talk about your yeah. international experience. You know, you've done such, such fascinating work uh, all around the world. You were touching on this next question just a moment ago, but I, I want to get a little bit more precise if you can. Based on your experience, both here in the United States and abroad, what can people do, those who are listening, to minimize suffering in the world? Yeah. If you had to pick one thing yeah. to recommend we all consider, what would that be? To recognize that the most important human need is to be heard. I uh, was privileged with my family when my kids were young to get to go hear Archbishop Desmond Tutu speak about the power of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. And he was asked, how did that work? Prisoners and the jailers and so many people on both sides of the equation. And he said, because we created a safe peace, we'll be able to be heard. And that's not just pragmatic pragmatism for people of faith. That's a spiritual principle. So I would start with that. But if you ask me, like, wave the wand, Tyler, you know, what, what's my wish? I've got a double header here. It's a bookend, Rob. Get the first thousand days right and create community and national service opportunities for every kid between age 17 and 21. Those are the bookends. On the first thousand days, every kid and every mother and their support system need to make sure they have everything they need for a healthy first thousand days. And I'm not making some statement about when life starts. People can make their own choice about that. But I know that the health of the mother at conception and what's in her fridge and whether there's trauma around her and whether she has the support she needs long before the baby arrives have everything to do with what that baby is going to experience. And those first few years of life, we know so much about reading and that early life trajectory, but you got to get those first thousand days right or you're always dealing with adverse child events, adverse community experience, adverse colonial experience, these aces <laughs> that are so darn pernicious and we spend the rest of adolescence, young childhood and adulthood trying to fix it. And the second is kind of on the other bookend is young adulthood which is an opportunity to learn and grow and serve. I've been so inspired by the national service models. Well, 18 months, it shouldn't matter whether it's the AmeriCorps, a conservation corps, a food corps, or the Marine Corps. Every kid ought to have an opportunity to serve for 12 to 18 months, 
learn a skill, build some relationships and social ties, and earn resources for education, whether college or trade, so that they can go out into the world as an adult, not in debt, saddled with debt, with some skills and the ability to grow a healthy family and be responsible with society. Help those young people say, as I said in the beginning, define their vocare, their sense of calling. And so, you know, those to me are the things that I have, I have observed in the United States and around the world are really what would change this most. Now, I want to be really clear, Rob. I have not been talking much about serious mental illness and those who support serious mental illness, maybe two, three percent of our population. The importance of addressing first episode psychosis at age 12 or 13. If you address first episode psychosis at that age, right, and you give it the right kind of care, you can help prevent that schizophrenia and else down the road. And there's obviously really key work for serious mental illness. But I'm talking about the 20, 30, 40% of kids where the kind of conditions we've been talking about on this conversation are driving the mental health crisis in the country. We've got to get the care right around serious mental illness, including that kind of prevention and early response. But if our society is essentially producing the demand for mental health care by our own dysfunctions and not listening and not caring up front, it should be no surprise that we reap what we sow. I think this is going to be a perfect way to conclude our talk today, Tyler. And it's just been wonderful to speak with you and to learn and, and, and listen to your thoughts. When you look back on your life's experience, both the good and the bad, hmm. how would you hope that the experience of today's kids would be different from or the same as yours? That every young person knows that they're not alone. There were times in my life where I did not know I was not alone. You're not alone. You're loved. And there's somebody there who is there for you and have the courage to ask. I would, I would ask us as adults and teachers and people of responsibility to watch our words and watch our emotions. It is so easy to shame a child. It is so easy to have a child start to doubt themselves and their goodness. We have the opportunity to create the conditions in our communities and in our schools and in our families where we recognize that mental health struggles are no different than some physical struggle. God knows COVID has given us perhaps one of the greatest gifts amidst hundreds of thousands of losses. Think about how many millions of American kids have lost parents and family members and teachers and all this. But if COVID has taught us anything, that the mental health crisis in this country isn't one in five anymore. It's one in one. Every single one of us has been experiencing some level of anxiety or oppressive thoughts or fallen back on our addictions, whether that's food or alcohol or overworking, right? Pick your darn flavor. But if every young person knew they were not alone, that there were safe places for them to talk, they could build skills for themselves and show up for their friends with competencies that are worthy of their friendships, we would have a very different country. And I'm going to tell you, I'm a patriot. I was raised in a Christian household, Republican household, and I consider myself a patriot. And I believe that every single one of us has a contribution to bring. 
But if we don't start creating safety for conversations around mental health, and we are five years short of our 250th birthday as a country, we will find ourselves erode from within, where our mental emotional challenges, our othering of each other, the dissing of black and brown and indigenous and LGBT kids, and that polarization will limit our ability to address any of the challenges this nation and our world faces. So I'm all for claim who you are, be proud of who you are. Let's create safe spaces for that and allow the young people of the future to bring forward some kind of a non-binary way of addressing these kinds of questions so we can address the big issues before us, like who we are as a nation. Thank you, Rob. Tyler, it's been a true pleasure. And I so look forward to working with you, to continue working with you and your organization and partners to make a lot of what you just talked about a reality for our kids and our society. So thanks so much. Great gratitude, Rob. Thanks so much for asking these questions and allowing me to speak through it this morning. I, these issues are so important and um, there's a role for every one of us. So whoever you are out there, find your role. It matters. I want to thank Tyler for joining us on the show today and informing us on the physical, mental, and social health needs affecting children in communities around the world, and for discussing the inspirational path forward for today's communities and philanthropic organizations. You can find more information by visiting our website at actionforhealthykids.org or checking us out on Instagram and Twitter. Be sure to listen out for our next episode, and don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. I'm Rob Bisegli, and thanks for listening to Kids Can from Action for Healthy Kids. Oh, 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 oh